This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where our fireballs all look like cabbages. I am Glenn <laughs> Butler, the Wednesday Walker, and this week we are discussing Stranger Things, the latest blockbuster Netflix original show. As such, this episode will contain spoilers for the entire series. I am Scottless for the first time on this fine podcast product, but never fear, for I am very glad to be joined today by my good friend, someone who's been on the old Spectacular twice already, Alana Kelly. Alana, the last time you were here, I asked you if there was anything you would not do for your family, and you responded with a single stoic tear. How does that fare in comparison to what everyone's doing for their family in Stranger Things? Or in more practical terms... How many of the walls in your house are you prepared to tear down, and do you have an axe handy? Oh, what an excellent question. I actually am axeless, um, which maybe it's maybe low-key breaking a fire code of some kind. Um, but I would definitely uh, tear this one down to to find my kid, like the uh, inimitable, wonderful Joy Spire character. Like, I couldn't help but notice that uh, that Jonathan happily doused his own house in uh, in gasoline. That's a, that's a commitment. Oh, yeah. By the end of the series, the buyer's house is pretty much destroyed. Mm-hmm. And, and then they have to, like, rebuild and clean up. I mean, it's a little hard to see in that final scene with them in the house, but... They must have cleaned that up a great deal and gotten everything fixed. I'm I'm almost imagining that after Will comes back, there's such good feeling from the community that they kind of all pitch in to help rebuild the house. That's a nice thought, right? It is a small town. And it was, uh, you know, the days before GoFundMe, but um, I think everyone would have known. <laughs> known. They for sure had to change out the carpet. <laughs> Because of the gasoline. <laughs> oh yeah, the carpet and the and the wallpaper. Because part of it is torn off over the hole in the wall, and another part has the alphabet painted on it. Mm-hmm. I was actually I was pretty so the eighties um, as a decade. Looking back on them, we often remember them as a very uh, materialistic time, and of course that's partially class driven. Um, you know, the, it was the the age of the rising yuppie and such and a lot of conspicuous consumerism and i kind of enjoyed that joyce had no attachment to material items in her home whatsoever like she would rip them all to shreds um without hesitation i was i was removed by that as a mother (laughs) watching the show again as i did to try to prepare for this podcast i noticed more of a class distinction than i did the first time around i mean will Mm -hmm. and his family their house is not quite as nice. The things they have are not quite as nice as especially the Wheeler family. I mean, their house mm-hmm. we spend the most time in in the whole series, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And they have, even in this same small town, 
in Indiana, they have a much more like what you would think of as a typical upscale suburban house, right? Yeah, and then and then Steve Harrington is even a notch above that with the with the pool and the like nice art and the the fancy split level staircase and oh, stuff yeah. with, with the heated pool in 1983. Yes. Hmm. And leaving it on like that in the fall, uh, you know, that's pretty much setting money on fire. So that there there definitely is a class layers thing. It um there are so many references to everything in here that I, I don't know if we can tease them all out, but this particular the class thing reminds me of a. Uh, the the classic uh, some kind of wonderful which is a there's a lot of class stuff in there about are we are, are we, do we date up or do we date at our level and what does it mean and what does it mean for friends with a kid from the wrong side of the tracks um, that's actually one of the most endearing things about the boys is that they all uh, are loving on uh, on Will with with no kind of his little friend his his friends do love him wrong side of uh, wrong side of town or not. Yeah, I mean, Joyce refers at one point to people making fun of Will for the clothes he wears, and mm. that's something that kind of sets the, the sheriff aback, like, what is it about his clothes? But that's definitely part of Jonathan's experience in school as well, mm. as like definitely. any... Oh, God, I, I don't know about you in middle school and high school, but like any little difference that anyone can hop on is suddenly what puts you below everyone else. Yes. And you can tell for Jonathan that not only being a little bit economically disadvantaged, maybe um, having divorced parents, being a little socially awkward and a little nerdy, being into photography. They say at one point, Jonathan and Nancy, I think, that he does photography so he can look at people and take pictures of people instead of talking to people. And so these are all mm -hmm. things that, like, set him apart, which mm -hmm. is not as much the case for the younger generation. Like you say, the um, they're all 12, I think, right? All of the middle Something school... Like yeah, all of the middle school kids have just kind of formed their group of nerds, basically, who, who like the ham radio and D&D. &D. And they have their bikes, so they're, like, literally ride or die <laughs> for each other. It's, it's It's just the most wonderful... Wonderful thing to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And um, speaking of their D&D &D adventures, that kind of prepares them for the genre of story that they fall into in the show a lot more than a lot of the other characters. I mean, that, that was something that I was thinking about a lot while watching the show, that it has all of these references and crosses all of these genres in a way that really shows that strict genre distinctions don't exist, for one thing, but also kind of pulls in references wherever it wants to pull them from. Yeah, they're using anything in the right zeitgeist was up for grabs as inspiration, and they meld it together in a beautiful way. They being the, the Duffy brothers, I think, are the people who thought this one up. I've never heard of them before, but here's their uh, project. <laughs> the Duffer Brothers. Yeah, I never heard of them before Duffer. either. Thank you. You know, whenever I hear brother brothers, I think of uh, the Wachowski brothers, who are now the Wachowski uh, sisters or siblings. I actually heard that um, the other one is also a, a transgender uh, person. Yes. At this point, so I think they're the yeah the, they're the Wachowski sisters or the Wachowski genderqueer siblings. I'm not sure exactly where where they are on the 
on the spectrum, but uh, they also executed uh, inspiring uh, sci-fi stuff. I, it makes me like the, you hear about about writing partners in Hollywood. There's actually like a Writers Guild of America um, way to ha- to show a partnership in credits. I just found that out from the West Wing podcast the other week. That when you the when there's an ampersand between names and a writing credit, it means they're a team and they're credited as a team. And then if it's the word and separating another name, it means that they had two writers working on it who are not necessarily a team. But they there's some production teamwork and direction teamwork happening too. But the, the definitely two brains are better than one thing I think we see we see here. And of course, when they're credited under one name, like the Duffer brothers, they're a gestalt entity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and of course the Cohen brothers, who could forget them? Yes. Yeah, it, it definitely is many genres all at once. And I, I guess from an artistic perspective and a marketing perspective, I suppose, that can pull in people from all sorts of different angles, right? What were the angles that attracted you to the show? Well, I'm always looking for sci-fi that will engross me because I am married to a huge sci-fi devotee. And actually, as I as I grow up, <laughs> as I say in my 30s, I find that I like the escapism of of sci-fi more and more. And I don't I I, I don't always engage with it in a written word. So I like I like to see movies and TV because especially now that um, people can do more with effects work in different kinds of ways. They can really do a lot of world building in a way that appeals to me. I, I always did like fantasy um, and sci-fi, I think, has a lot in common with sci-fi when it comes to it, like escapism and like use of story tropes and stuff. Yeah. So I, like I said, I'm always looking for good sci-fi. And then um, people were the Facebook was uh, was very excited when the show debuted in July. Um, and I, you know, I have a lot of friends who are also nerds. So, so I heard quite a bit about it. And just uh, the the mood in the first episode, it just has a lot of confidence. Like one of the one of the things I like about Netflix produced shows, and actually um, Hulu is getting there too, and uh, and Amazon Prime. But I, Netflix, I think, is still where where it's at the highest level. But um, because they produce seasons, they don't have that that problem with pilots uh, that you often see on shows that came to to their existence on network TV where they're like frantically trying to find an audience like they can they have a lot more luxury with pacing and they can they can also hide as much as they show in the pilot and it's just the, this uh, I don't I guess you wouldn't even call it a pilot but just um, episode one is uh, is super engrossing and the the, the kids are are very winning right away so just really it just really grabbed me and i so i I turned it on to see if i would like it and then i immediately (laughs) did (laughs) yeah honestly i think i gave the show a shot equally as much because of the logo name generator that i saw so many people (laughs) making so many images with online as much as the story or what people were saying about the actual show. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was thinking, I would like to use that logo for something. I'd better watch the show to make sure it's not crap. (laughs) So I watched the first episode, then the next day I watched the second episode, and then on the third day I watched the rest of the show. Yeah, which is basically how that pacing worked. Um, the, The pacing of a Netflix show... And of a streaming show in general, uh, that's getting like a Kleenex sort of brand name. <laughs> the pacing of these shows is interesting to me because 
there's a different experience trying to discuss the show, right? Where if one person is on episode four and another person is on episode seven, mm-hmm. that conversation really has to be mediated or it can't happen. Well, unless one person doesn't care about spoilers or the other person is super, super scrupulous. But that can happen on, on regular broadcast shows too, but that would happen because someone is behind and watching it as opposed to is just watching it at a different pace when everything is available at the same time. And of course, as you mentioned, the pace of production and of laying out the story allows you to do a lot with the pacing of the story that you maybe can't do in a regular network show. So it's very interesting the way that that changes how we relate to the show as far as cliffhangers, as far as hooks, not only to try to get you to keep watching the show, but to try to get you to keep watching it right now because the <laughs> timer's going off. It's The next episode is coming in 15 seconds. Yeah, yeah, it's like a kind of like a little Skinner box. Like, are you really going to turn it off? Like, I dare you, kind of. <laughs> you can get your reward right now. <laughs> Even at the expense of, you know, other things you have to do. Like, I should really go feed the cat, but I can give this another 45 minutes. Yeah, or I should really sleep, but nah, we gotta see what's on the other side of this. And the way I see it rolling out on social media is it kind of, the it's it splits the population. There's the people who've made it to the other side of the river and seen the whole show, and then there's everyone else in their various stages of naivete, including fully naive if they haven't watched it yet. And also, like, I don't want to join a discussion until I've seen the whole thing, or if I see someone else interested who has not seen the whole thing, I don't want to speak because the the other thing about the Netflix binge is I have no idea unless I'm thinking really hard when, which episode contained which material. They run together pretty hard. Right, <laughs> right, definitely. I, I found myself thinking watching this show that at the end of each episode, there was such a good hook to keep me watching and then mm-hmm. after the whole show is done, I'm thinking of, oh, this moment was great and this moment was great. And I don't have any memory, really, of most of the ones that were at the end of an episode or anywhere else in an episode, frankly. I mean, there mm-hmm. are so many moments in the show that really, really hooked me. What were your, what were some of the moments in the show that really, really stand out to you seeing it in full? Uh, there's a there's a few that are pretty haunting. Like I, I moved on to watching something else when I finished this, and and I I still think of several moments from this show. Um, and I had a sim- similar experience with um, with Sensate actually, but like just really captivating things. Probably the thing I think about the most is when Joyce makes herself a Christmas light Ouija board because she is convinced that she has heard from Will. I think he's done the the on and off to her a couple different ways when she finally is like, I, I got this. Like I'm going to, I'm going to give him an alphabet so that he can talk to me. Uh, so we can go beyond uh, yes and no. I like it because the faith of a mother is very moving to me as someone who is also a mother. And then there's like this inside outside feeling that you get from her because every once in a while when she's in the paint, like then the Ouija board like typifies this. Like if anyone comes in and sees what she did, like she looks committable. Like she looks insane. Like we know that she has actually seen and heard from Will. Like we know that the, that the creature is really there. Like, you know, and, and, and as far as we know, but the, the thing that stays with me is somewhere around that episode, I thought that there was a chance that grief was 
projecting a lot of shit around Joyce. And so both pathways were still there. The Joyce actually does know the truth and so do we path. And then the Joyce is actually in a huge like mental health spiral decline right now. And we're all going to kind of watch that bottom out and see what happens. Like they, they, both pathways were there for as long as possible. So there was a lot of dramatic tension because like, are we going to, is something going to give it away? And she's she actually has lost her mind. Or does she, is she alone in seeing the truth? Like, is she, you know, is she the, the Cassandra of the story? It's really, it's really moving. And like the, the sound of the lights turning on and off because they, they have that old fashioned sound. Like you can hear the filament turning on and off in these, these huge ass Christmas lights, which just, that's a very nostalgic noise to me. <laughs> Because of the Christmas lights I used to have in my own house. In fact, in the eighties, um, they just the, they were detail perfect. So like I, I think about I think about her and her lights Ouija board a lot, and I have a couple others if you want me to keep talking. Or did you want to trade? Like you could do one too. Well, we let's do a few. Well, <laughs> let's talk about that one a little more because that was relatively early on in the show when yes. if you don't already know what sort of show this is going to be, there are many different possibilities there. I mean, we've seen a CG effect for the monster a couple of times, but that's typical enough in TV to use effects to show us what one person is seeing out of grief or mental illness, like she is implied to have experienced, or imagining things or dreaming or whatever. So that's still in a phase of the show where it's straddling a lot of different genres, it's straddling a lot of different things that it could be doing. And it's our faith in that character and our investment in that character, as well as whatever knowledge we have at that point of the sort of show that this is, that really solidifies that as actual contact with her actual son. Um, mm -hmm. The moment that really, really stands out to me is a little bit before that, when she first starts using the Christmas lights to communicate with Will, and he leads her into the crawl space, and she gathers up this big bundle of lights and begs him, you know, with with, with all of this like panic and and grief and alarm, begs him to to light it up for her. And suddenly she's bathed in this pure mm -hmm. white light, which is just yes, such a, yeah. It's such a great visual, and it's such a confirmation in visual terms and in story terms that this is actually happening and her son is actually there. Yes, and the light lights on and off. They they take on a, a benevolent quality for the first time. Like they're super creepy all up until that point. Like they it's either something supernatural, it's either like a horrible prank possibly coming from the stupid uh, department of energy nonsense that's in town you know like it, it's either like, it could be like an elaborate gaslighting scheme from them it could be an you know there's nothing good about it until there is this this confirmation that there is some, there is some essence of of will producing it at least at this time like that's the other thing like the 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 lights now have more than one meeting it's very context driven like we've seen the lights go on and off for the Demogorgon and we see them now go on and off for Will. And it's just, it just adds a layer to it and, and uh, another, another dimension of the world building. Like what does the flashing light mean? Well, it's not actually only one thing. It's a couple things like it, where we're trying to learn the rules of the show and they, they're, they're evolving. Yeah. And, and that moment is such a moment of grace for her, even yeah. though everyone's going to think she's crazy. Everyone already thinks she's crazy. But, Jonathan too. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things that I think they do very, very well in this show is pacing the amount of information that each individual character has and when they wind up pooling information. I didn't realize when I was first watching it that it was only eight episodes. I assumed, without looking, that it would be a typical 13-episode season. And so... Mm In around episode seven, when the generations started meeting, you had the three staggered generations of people who had been Mm -hmm. gathering information throughout the show. When they started meeting and pooling information, I was thinking, well, this is going to be a little while before the resolution. I don't know if they can do this yet. And then the next episode was the finale. So in retrospect, though, I think that it was a very, very good thing that the season was the length that it was and that it was paced the way that it was, because I think if they had spent more episodes artificially keeping everyone apart, then that could have dragged on. Yeah, yeah, it, they they kept it exciting, and um, it is good that it was short. There's no room for anything to sag because it's it's just it moves along, but it is very richly detailed because they have eight hours instead of two, approximately. <laughs> the, the the other thing about uh, Joyce and the Christmas lights thing that I really like is we get to see a, a bit of her grit sometime in the first two episodes when she goes back to her job and just is like, "This is the worst week of my life. I've never taken a sick day." I need the following items. And she's just she's just very matter of fact and resourceful actually. Like what what can she do in in this moment? Like she can literally get the Christmas lights that she's convinced that she needs from Woolworths or whatever it is or somewhere similar that she's working. She won't back down from her boss. And I just I appreciate that on a, on a number of levels, and and it does it does show like a core of strength that is inside of her sort of hand wringing and um you know she's got kind of a high a, a very very tremulous voice almost the entire time and obviously like this is a high stress situation for for Joyce but the first half of the first episode I was a little nervous that I was going to be irritated by Winona Ryder's performance, but because we added in that grit I really started to be on her side a lot and I I admire everything that uh that Winona put in it yeah Winona Ryder was given the motivation for pretty much the whole length of the series that she is utterly and completely panicked and she's barely holding it together and Mm -hmm. no one believes her for a large amount of the show and so she is panicked and angry so she's given this this motivation that's very consistent across the whole show and she does a lot of different things with it in terms of her physicality and in terms of her voice that kind of lends a little more variety to what could have been more one note. Yeah, I think it's another reason why, like you said, the series being short really works because the the single-mindedness can't hold forever as a character feature for her. So we, you know, we get it. We get just the right amount of it. What about one of your faves? What stands out to you? Another thing that really stood out to me was between all of the children in the show, when they're mm-hmm. kind of secreting Eleven into the middle school to try to get her to the radio. Yeah. And their AV club teacher comes along. Mr. Clark. He is great. Yeah. I, 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 just, I just love him as the font of all information. Yes. You know, in, in terms of the kid movie genre that this show is kind of taking as inspiration a little bit as well, 
he is that teacher who knows everything about everything. And they can ask him about parallel universes, and he instantly gets the D&D reference. And they can ask him mm-hmm. about sensory deprivation tanks at 10 o'clock on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And, and he is just earnest in the extreme, like all the kids are too, actually. And yeah, he, there's something touching about him. Yeah, and when when he asks Elle, where are you from exactly? And she starts saying, a bad place. <laughs> and then all of the other kids instantly swoop in. Sweden, I have a lot of Swedish family. It's really cold there. Everyone kind of swarms around her to, to cover for her. And it's just it just really typifies their relationship at that point. Where, like in D&D again, they are a party. And... One yes, of the other themes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of the other themes that runs through the show is you don't divide the party. Yes. That's true, actually. The whole show is actually is actually a D and D campaign with like with like side quests for the for the other characters too. I like that they like it some 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 shows would like take cheap shots at Mr. Clark and like they show him on, on his little date at the end, like what, the time when he's giving the information about the floating tank. Um, and he's watching the horror movie and completely geeking out over it to his girlfriend or his date or whoever he's with. And they just, they don't, they don't make fun of him. There's no joke there. It's just, it just fits with who he is and why he would love, like why those four would be his favorite students. Like they're obviously so bright and kind to each other. Like I, I always, I think if I were a teacher, I would, love those four boys so much and like seeing seeing a teacher encourage their minds and like understand that they're a foursome like that makes me feel really good i like to see it yeah there's a lot of heartwarming stuff there with yeah the teacher and encouraging the kids and like loving that these are the ones who are actually interested in his science class yes yeah and that they like they actually would call him because they think he knows things. Like, there's no greater show of respect for a teacher than that than being like, I didn't know something and I thought that you would, so I called you, you know? And I love that that's how Dustin, I think it is, I don't know if the names yes. of the kids clear in my mind, kind of guilts him into giving them the information. You always say we should have the doors of information open. Why are you closing the doors of information? Door of curiosity. Curiosity, yeah. yes. Oh my god, Dustin, I, I, wish, I wish to be his foster mother. He is my favorite favorite i love him so much oh goodness but i actually love all of them and they bring they have different personalities like they're very fleshed out which i which i really like the four boys uh remind me of the goonies of course um <laughs> and i i was thinking today when i, I rewatched part of episode eight in the time between between work and and getting on the podcast tonight and uh 11 was saying friends don't lie which uh, which will and 11 say to each other a few different times and it reminded me of goonies never say die <laughs> which i still remember nigh on 30 years later um there's just it's right there it's it's such a beautiful tribute to the 80s um, yeah there there are tributes to so many different 80s movies in this i mean you you could spend so much time kind of picking them all out i mean oh, there's yeah. goonies in there obviously there's et they actually have a freaking bicycle chase oh yeah yeah there's a lot of a lot of et stuff especially for 11 which i think works uh works really well yeah, and all of the kid hero movies in the 80s, the high school kids are in a John Hughes movie until some yes, of them yeah. realize they're not. 
<laughs> yeah. That's that's one thing that's always fascinating to me about these sort of sci-fi shows, horror shows sometimes, that the characters have to figure out what genre they're in and how that differs mm-hmm. from the genre they think they're in. And there's always that moment or that scene when people are figuring out. And that can be done well or it can be done badly. And so many of the ones in this are done really well, where even by yeah. the end, Steve freaking Harrington figures out he's in a sci-fi horror show and adapts. And even that gives him his kind of crowning moment by the end. Yeah, there's a lot of unsaid stuff. There's kind of this feeling culturally that um, Americans, uh, bless our dumbasses, um, can't keep up with uh, with narrative subtlety. But there's a lot of suggestion in the show, um, and a lot of dots that we are uh, made to connect for ourselves. Like the like the first time that this is another favorite moment of mine. Actually, the the first time that when Chief Hopper first breaks into the lab and is stopped, and then it, the next time we see him, he's on his couch with all these pill bottles and stuff and and booze bottles and he doesn't say anything like the setup is there for us to pick up but it's not it's not actually spelled out that that these freaking um you know g-men have uh, have created a perfect blind for him like you you actually didn't do any of that stuff um you know you were probably uncon like you, you were probably blacked out or like even if you did try to report any of it like there's all of this stuff in your system and like you're a, you're a known substance abuse the the g-men were giving themselves an out but he, he doesn't wake up and go like hark what is all this around me what hath befallen me like he just he just looks at it and kind of rolls his eyes and he and, and refuses to be taken in by it but like it's, it's very show don't tell, I guess, which is why I love it. And then later, when he breaks back in there with Joyce, like one of the one of the G Men dudes um, says, you know, you know, you're just a you're just a drug addict. Like no nobody would believe what you say anyway. Like they they, they do go back to it at that point, but um, the first time we see them setting setting him up, um, they've done it. Like we didn't we didn't see him do it on screen. He just wakes up in this thing, and the last time we saw him, he was in the lab. So it's like, oh, those assholes, like. <laughs> You know, because he's like, you know, he's actually a grieving, um, a grieving parent who's had a rough time, and it would be easy to believe that he had a bad night for whatever reason. Like it's just they're they're really capitalizing on a on a potential weakness with no remorse, and it just gives some more uh, antagonism to you know to them. It's just something that for us to to see in a shot, and I just love it. And always setting up the next setup, potentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. since there are more than enough long, dark nights of the soul going around in this show. Yes, there are quite a few. It is funny about the genre thing. Poor Nancy doesn't get to have her John Hughes moment for very long. <laughs> and Barb, even less than that. <laughs> oh, poor, poor Barb. For real. <laughs> Poor Barb, indeed. I mean, there's a whole movie about how some football player told her to take her glasses off and let her hair down, and suddenly she was the belle of the ball, right? Yeah. And I guess there's a whole other movie where Nancy decided that Barb was really the one for her. 
Nice. You know, there are so many directions, well, it, you know. There's a lot of rule thir- I'm sure there's a lot of rule 34 happening in this as in all uh, in all things that have attracted a fandom. That's that's another thing that people think they're in. I mean, Steve Arrington sees Nancy with Jonathan after they confront the Demogorgon the first time and suddenly he thinks, "Oh, I know what story I'm in. I'm in a teen love triangle." When yeah. whether or not Jonathan thinks he's in a teen love triangle, is a little ambiguous, but he might. Nancy never thinks she is. Yeah. And she spends well, a considerable part of the show trying to convince everyone else that she's not. Yeah, I mean, Steve's two effing friends are so repugnant. You know that you know the tagging was their idea. Yes. Um, and I actually, I, re- I actually appreciated this detail a lot. Um, so Steve gets to have a reversal on the whole thing, and he goes to he goes to Jonathan's house to try to 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 work it out with a what seems to be an actual like grown up motivation. Like I acted shitty, and I feel bad about it now. But I like that they inserted the part where he was actually removing the tagging from the movie theater. He started to feel bad about it like his stupid friends were so shitty and his first sort of um remorseful act or 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 uh, act of of uh, repair is to freaking get her name out of the public eye a little bit before he goes on to a personal level like i just i like that he was trying to undo the harm socially in in addition to personally for her and for for jonathan like he he had broken uh jonathan's camera which is super shitty given their huge class you know difference um anyway yeah i I like that it's not just steve is a dick and then we see him at the house and he gets to save the day with the baseball bat like he actually did try to like undo some harm in a bigger way in their little town before he was gonna try to go fix it yeah i think if you're going to try to redeem steve harrington Mm-hmm. And this is the redemption of the douchebag in the story. It's That's the rare <laughs> example that I'm actually into. Right, um, I usually hate that. Yeah, it's usually really forced. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. if, if you're going to redeem Steve Harrington, he at least has to try to make amends and remove the damage that he actively caused. Yeah. Also, it's such an overreaction to what he actually saw. And I feel like he saw it, he talked about it with his effing insufferable friends and um and it just got they made it bigger and he, and he he was upset too because i think he actually does genuinely enjoy nancy like he like he likes nancy um besides just wanting to like a pretty girl i think he actually likes nancy specifically so i think he did have a hurt feeling but um the the the, the douche twins uh you know I, kids that egg each other on so much uh, like i could just and, and all that happens off screen and we just we see them we see the tagging and we, we see it from Nancy's point of view. Like she happens upon it and is horrified. And so are we, and but the, 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 because they've made such strong characters, you know, I, I can imagine, like I was just describing everything that went on between Steve and the, the, the two idiots um, without, without them having to show it to me. They, they actually built it into the story. It flows by itself. Yeah. At that point in the story, they are such dirtbag teens. Yes. I mean, that's the analog age version of what today, for today's dirtbag teens, would be like this massive Facebook call-out post. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, trolling each other on social media, like, (laughs) or we can tag each other on the freaking town movie theater. (laughs) Same, same, same public shaming thing you know the same scarlet letter same tying her to the pillory thing the the motivation is the same yeah and and that's another thing too 
those two douche twins, as you call them, I, I love that name for them. <laughs> Among the children in the show, they're the only ones who are really irrepressibly cynical. Like, the 12-year-olds are deeply, deeply earnest. And Nancy yeah, is, even... too. And Steve Harrington eventually has that kind of awoken within him. But those are the only two who are featured in the show who are really, really deeply cynical. Even though, oh, I mean, it, yeah. it kind of breaks my heart that all of these people are going to be Gen Xers. You know? <laughs> because... Well, there is, there is Troy, the bully of of the boys troy and his little shitty friend troy's the one that uh 11 makes piss himself in the assembly which is beautiful oh he pisses himself and then she breaks his arm which you know yeah that's, that's a good amount of comeuppance for one week well i mean if you don't give a girl verbal skills she's gonna be physical we learned that i think <laughs> definitively with 11 yes and in, in that scene, I'm still imagining them as a D&D &D campaign where the person playing as L says, I'm going to levitate him out of the quarry and then rolls a natural 20. <laughs> oh, Levin is so good. She, Should we spend some time talking about how great she is? <laughs> oh, she is. She's the best. In fact, let's go ahead and take a break and listen to some ads for other shows on our great podcast network here, and we will come back and talk about Eleven and how awesome she is, and all sorts of other things for this show. We will see you soon. Good deal. of Ring of Honor's Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you're subscribed to all of our great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. Just head to iTunes today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be podcast feed, the PWO PTBN feed, PTBN Pop, and of course, the Kevin Kelly Show feed, which includes the full archives of my podcast. Some really great stuff. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. Thanks for being a fan of professional wrestling. More importantly, thanks for being a fan and supporter of the Place to Be Nation. Place to Be Nation is JT Rosero here. In addition to the archives of the Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceToBeNation.com. And we now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the Place to Be podcast feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, with our famous vintage vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with clotheslines and headlines, main event, Mission Indie Possible, in our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. Relive Wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. All of this in addition to Scott Keith's Podcast of Doom, which includes discussions on questions from listeners as well as current day and old school wrestling. We also have sports covered too with the Sports Lounge, the TJ McLoon Show, and NBA Team Podcast. 
On our brand new PTB Pop podcast feed, we offer great shows such as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both feeds on iTunes and be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All these shows are available on PlayStation.com where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments and more. Be sure to check out the right-hand side of the site for details on how to support the site when you shop at Amazon and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans we've got chris zellner's one-two punch of exile on bad street and with david bickenspan a smash hit between the sheets we've got wrestling culture with dylan hales and dave musgrave goodwill wrestling and the reaction shows with good old will from texas we got this week in wrestling with my man pete and johnny sorrow Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Team's back again with Kelly and Marty Sleeves. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. I am Glenn, that's Alana, we are talking about Stranger <laughs> Things, and let's talk about Eleven and how awesome she is. How awesome is she? Oh my gosh, she's so epic. She's so epic. And uh, they all her flashbacks that kind of flesh out her, I don't really want to call it a life in the lab, because it's just a ho- horrible. Um, they just, they use it so well, and... I don't know. It's just it's it's a very it's a very very classic method of uh, of giving a character foundation and do flashbacks. Um, they're they're very moving. You get something out of every single one of them. Yeah, every little snapshot kind of reveals more about just why she behaves the way that she does. Like a lot of the earlier ones, concentrate on like specific trauma triggers, like when she sees the can of coke or when she's shut up in the closet. And when she sees the cat. Yes, the cat, too. And and all of these things that bring back specific memories for the character, but also show us the depravity of her situation. Yes. Oh, my God. So depraved, Dr. Brenner. Double F you. Double finger. I feel like Elle is sort of shockingly violent. But then in the flashbacks, we see that Brenner was asking her to do quite violent things. She was given 
violent tasks to try to complete with no context, no moral discussion, no anything. They're ju- they just exist in the context of experimentation. So the ease with which she is very violent completely makes sense. And even though there is evil in the acts that surround her, she is not evil. I never, I never feel that about her. It's very interesting. Well, she's more of a blank slate, right. morally, because she hasn't she hasn't had any upbringing. She hasn't had any real parenting. Only as much manipulation as it took to get her to develop in the way that they wanted her to. And so when she's thrown into a situation with the boys in the show where she's given for the first time something of a moral code, friends don't lie, and, and, we don't hurt each other. Right. Uh, when you do hurt each other, you know, the person who draws first blood has to extend their hand. You make amends. You know, she's given a moral framework for the first time, and she really takes to it once she begins to understand it, which is a whole process in itself. She's clearly a creature of many gifts, including heightened, heightened intellect. And to me, it is such a crime that Brenner didn't stimulate her properly. She's barely verbal when we meet her. Like, that is, there is something deeply unsettling, deeply evil about that. That she wouldn't even know words, that she would barely know name words. You know, she she, she knows Papa and she knows her own name um, when we meet her, but very, very little other than that. She's so thin. Um, like she literally is trying to get food when we find her because she's so hungry. Like, and that cell that they keep her in, especially since she's ob- they're they're obviously trying to. She seems to be an an anti. They're trying to co- channel her into some kind of anti uh, communist, like Cold War, amazing tool, code breaker, or uh, you know, so so some kind of something like that. So she's gonna she's gonna become someone of value. And the way they treat her is so shocking. And then I came to understand it. it, it they don't think of her as someone of value. They think of her as something of value. Yeah, she's she, not actually per- a person to them at all. Yeah, she's a tool they created. Yeah, in, she's, she's, she's just yeah, she's just the result of an experiment, which is something we we, we see that a lot in sci-fi in different ways, like. Yeah, it, it, there's many different variations of it. There's the the sentient android, or there's uh, even even the Frankenstein story, the the uh, the Mary Shelley story. What you know? What is what is humanity anyway? Like, is it, can only God create humanity, or can can men create humanity? How how badly do men fuck up when they try to create humanity? Like, we see that story a lot. Yeah, there's an uh, undercurrent in a lot of those stories as well. That if you create something inhuman or just outside of the human norm, there's a very real danger that it will turn around and judge you. Yes. And there's also, there's a contrast between Brenner and his crew taking zero responsibility for Eleven and Eleven taking complete responsibility for the appearance of the Demogorgon, which... I kind of read the Demogorgon as a shade of of Eleven's rage. Eleven seems very troubled by the Demogorgon's existence, and like I think that's why, because she doesn't she doesn't speak much, so it's it's kind of hard to know exactly what she's thinking. But um, she 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 definitely feels feels that she's at at fault for. Uh, for, the, for the for the creation of the access to the upside down and and the Demogorgon, and 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 Brenner and. Uh, Brenner and his crew just want Eleven back, and they just are 
sloppily pacing over the damage that she's done without taking any responsibility at all. That moves the story a little more into government conspiracies and cover-ups and a lot mm. of that X-Files kind of stuff to move into a more 90s yeah. context. But another story that we know the shape of, but yeah. the exact context of it becomes clear only later. And the context of it is very 80s because they are kind of creating her just to spy on the Russians. And then the whole right. thing with the Demogorgon is completely by accident. Right. Whoops. Yeah, what we should have given her a hamburger more. My my husband Buck and I were joking um, after seeing episode one, like they they should have fed her better. Like <laughs> the woman just wanted a hamburger. Like <laughs> you could have spared yourself so much pain and suffering a little, if you just fed her properly. A little bit of human kindness once in a while. My gosh. Yeah. And and that's something that oh, yeah. that's something that makes it another really great moment in the show when all the generations come together in the last couple of episodes and Joyce gets to be more of a parent figure for Elle and Elle finally for once in her life is exposed to a decent parent who actually cares about people. And the way that they take to each other in the little bit of interaction that they have is just so heartwarming. It is. I, I literally did cry. Like, Joyce is holding her hand and, like, whispering to her that she can do it. Like, she's coaching. She's coaching Eleven. And she's she's so grateful to Eleven for her bravery. Like, it's just the contrast between her and Brenner is shocking like he basically is just giving 11 pass fail grades on all the experiments and literally nothing else and it's just not 11 is so underdeveloped as a result even underdeveloped especially socially like she's still so so remarkable and and joyce is allowed to have her self-interested motivation for her interaction with 11 because she's she's a frantic mother like she'll try literally anything there's that and i don't i don't even mind it because her instinct to be kind to a child is also there just as strong as her wanting to grasp onto any any way forward to find Will. Um, she, she's able to do both things at the same time um, completely fairly, and it, and it is, like I said, very moving. Yeah, that's one of those moments where having to reassure someone else reassures you in a way that yes. when you're in a situation yeah. that is so frantic and you're out of your mind because this traumatic event is happening, having yeah. to handle that for someone else kind of lets you step out of that for a second, as much as you're still mm -hmm. in it, obviously. And in terms of Eleven's story, I mean, oh man... People overcoming horrible, horrible emotional trauma is something that I don't think I will ever not be into in my sci-fi media. <laughs> right. It's very compelling stuff. Just getting into, like you said, the depth of the depravity of her situation and all that, but also the way that she kind of gropes around trying to overcome it and trying to deal with it first. And seeing her kind of find a foothold in that and progress to the extent that she does in the show is just so, so compelling. 
Yes. And um, it reminds me of another visual about Eleven. I, I read a little bit of uh, background on the show, and they, they were trying to be somewhat cost-conscious about about the production, as you are with your, you know, freshman season. But it was actually very inexpensive to shoot Eleven's sort of plane of access to everyone else. It's, it's the dark background with the water. And they, like, literally had, like, a black curtain <laughs> and some water. And, and they go with the idea of a void or the idea of there's nothing else but her and her objects of focus in this plane that she's in. I just love that necessity was the mother of invention there because it actually looks great. It's very, um, very evocative. And of course, there's no like common visual shorthand for telepathy. So they could do whatever they wanted. And they, they did this simple thing that's very, just very compelling, very engrossing. Um, her by herself listening to things in this black space. I hadn't considered that as a cost-saving measure, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the black box is the cheapest theater there is. There's one in every That's college right. in the nation. That's right. <laughs> yeah, they just, uh, they did a lot with it. And the actress playing Eleven, uh, Millie Bobby Brown, yes. does a really good job in some of the small gestures, too, which Eleven kind of has to work in since she's nonverbal for so much of the show. She has to work in glances and stares. And, and she does... Glare. Like, she's got a hell of a glare. Yes. <laughs> and she does a really good job like showing a range of emotions with those few things. She really does a lot. Very excellent acting work from from Millie Bobby Brown, and it uh, it did. Um, I think the comparison is inevitable, but but it did remind me very much of uh, Natalie Portman in, in The Professional back in 1994. They had their distinctive haircuts, of course. Ah, but also they're similar. They're similar ages when they were doing this stuff. Like I think. I'm looking at old Millie Bobby right here because Natalie was famously 11 when she made uh, The Professional. And yeah, okay, so Millie is 12 right now. So she was probably 11 or 12 when they were shooting. She brings a lot to it. There's a lot of vulnerability, a lot of bravery, a lot of layers. And she's just, she's, she's not an unconventional heroine. She, she's actually, she's not the damsel in the Dungeons and Dragons universe. She's actually like, she's the lead dangerous person. Like she actually has the most weapons. Well, she's, she's a member of the party. I mean, she's their wizard, right? Right, right. She's their wizard. Exactly. I did see one quote from the producers about how even though she was playing this, you know, traumatized, damaged girl... The actress, of course, is just a, you know, typical 11, 12-year-old. You know, she would show mm -hmm. up for a day of shooting covered in glitter, because that's something <laughs> that happens to children sometimes, I guess. And production would have to be delayed for several hours, because it is hard to get glitter off of someone. Oh, goodness. So now, now I'm just picturing Eleven covered in glitter, and like, I so badly want for her to be that happy. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that I dearly hope they get to in season two. They recently announced that they're doing a second season based on the reception for the first, and I hope that somehow the other children go back and find her, because she is such a great character and a great actress to have on the show that I really hope that she continues to be a part of it, no matter what else happens in season two. Yes, they left a nice open mystery there. 
Um, we don't know what Chief Hopper was, what the full extent of the deal was that got them out of, um, got them out of the lab, and we see him hiding Egos in the mailbox or the bear box at the very end of the show. And we know how our girl feels about Egos. <laughs> that I think you could read a couple of different ways, which would collapse into one probably in the in the next season. I mean, that could be just a hiding box for her to come and get food. It could be like a ceremonial thing that Hopper does. Um, mm -hmm. I guess that would depend on just what sort of direction they want to take that character in the next season as well. Oh, Hopper's really great too. David Harbour is the actor. He's. Mm. Ooh, again, he really moves me too. Again, just give me all the damaged people doing their best. Yes, give me all the damaged people. Goodness gracious, they do a lot with him too. Like, especially his arc from when we first see him. Um, the Refinery Twenty Nine uh, characterizes it as mansplaining to Joyce that ninety nine times out of a hundred the kid just ran away. Versus his willingness to turn around when he's proven wrong, and then then his ability to transfer his emotion about his daughter to action to save Will is extremely moving. And um, I also really like that strange quiet moment after he was knocking boots with his girlfriend, and then he like goes outside when it's super cold, and he's just kind of looking around, and we don't. He's just there. It's just this really quiet moment where he's you know maybe centering himself. For the day or maybe he's thinking about will or maybe he's thinking about his daughter and we don't get to find out because it's a, it's a private moment actually for the character but there's just something about him out there in the cold that just made me it makes me think about it he does have more than enough to think about right and he's introduced yeah. talking about how he needs his time for coffee and contemplation and so for that to be an important thing for him, I think, is a neat character note, not just as kind of a flippant line, but as, you know, contemplation being a thing that might actually be important to him. Yeah. Even among all of the, you know, beer cans strewn around his trailer and whatever mm -hmm. else. Oh, yeah. And then my husband and I were actually both surprised that his daughter actually died of a... She was ill, and they had to watch her die in the hospital. I got the strong impression that her death was accidental and sudden, based on how they were kind of vaguely referring to it throughout the show. And we don't get to find out until episode eight what actually happened. And then we also get to see that his his marriage failed, as so many marriages do when, when a child is lost. You can kind of assume it, since he's alone... But the confirmation that he and his wife couldn't make it past the death of their daughter, that also was very affecting and very upsetting. Yeah, and then there's that scene where he calls his ex-wife and mm -hmm. she has another baby. Right, yes. Which is super heartbreaking for him. But again, damaged people doing their best. She has to do her best too. Exactly, I'm not mad at her. No, of course. Yeah, everyone moves on and or doesn't in their own way. That was part of the pacing that kind of stood out to me because most everyone else, except Eleven who has it throughout the whole show, but most everyone else has their kind of flashbacks or context-giving scenes front-loaded. Hopper gets it in the last episode. Like, right. intermixed with Hopper and Joyce going into the Upside Down and searching around for Will. And that seemed like a unique choice to me, to not have that paced out the same as everyone else's. What do you think about the uh, writing or editing decisions there? It does sort of stand out that um, 
we get a trickle of information and then a lot. So it's, it's sort of inverse from some of the other characters. And then it does make me wonder how it went down in the writing room, but the the flashbacks that he is allowed to have, the matching the breathing to slow slow it down, um, this this CPR and such, to me they're super super effective. They fill in a lot and make me feel make me feel really good about Hopper's character. And they also like the pain that we get to see when he he's losing his daughter. He actually has to watch her go in the hospital room. Because there's this this moment in the beginning of episode eight where he and Joyce have been caught, and there Brenner's trying to convince Joyce that he's you know she can help, and she tells him to fuck off. And then um, and they're they're actually tasing a Hopper in the other room, and even though he's been tased several times, he just fearlessly tells the blonde lady, "This is what's going to happen now," as though he hasn't just been tased multiple times. And then we get to see later his loss over the, the over his daughter, and to me that that explains how he can be that fearless, because he's he's actually already lost everything. Have you read the uh, web comic Hyperbole and a Half? I have. There's a part of Ali Brosh's comic about her depression that mm-hmm. has really really stuck with me where she talks about an aspect of depression almost being like a superpower, where Mm -hmm. it kind Mm -hmm. of saps your ability to care about anything until you care about nothing, and then you can do anything. Right. And to me, that's kind of morphed into the point of, I have been through this trauma and this trauma and this trauma, these are the things that I've seen, and I'm still here, you think you can hurt me? Right. Yeah, he's almost, he's not quite actually laughing in their face, but he is supremely unconcerned about that taser. He's basically like, I, I could do this all, all day. <laughs> it actually gives me, it gives me a little Bruce Willis, actually. <laughs> yeah, a little, in, uh, a, a little bit, that kind of like gritty stoicism. Mm-hmm. I thought you were trying to hurt me. Is that all you have kind of thing? <sighs> yeah, Hopper just, he really, mm-hmm. like you said, Damaged, uh, damaged people doing their best. Oh, all day and all night. Mm. Oh, dude. So for funniness, there's something hilarious about Mr. and Mrs. Wheeler having zero idea what's going on with any of their children or their house at all. <laughs> yes, they're completely out of it. All, all they're interested in is will the damn kids get to breakfast on time for once in their lives? Yeah. Shout out to Holly, who's hilarious. The the littlest girl. <laughs> we talked about Hopper's experiences with his daughter, but he's the best father in the show. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Wheeler is completely checked out. Lonnie is a piece of crap. Oh, Lonnie like, is like a, a, piece of crap. a deadbeat douchebag. Yeah. And of course there's Papa, who is like the worst father ever. And so as much as we have different models of motherhood in the show, you know, Joyce is so completely, obviously invested in her kids because she's going through all of this. And Mrs. Wheeler is a little more detached, but still cares. The I actually, I, I liked her. They didn't make 100% obvious choices with her. There's, she's trying to bond with... Nancy, who of course doesn't want to bond with her at all, but I appreciated her good faith effort to be a friend to her daughter 
like and not in a not in a 100 fake way like i think she was genuinely trying to reframe herself as a source of emotional support and nancy does that ultimately confess that she was with steve like i just i appreciated the effort that mrs wheeler was making to be close to her although really they didn't figure out 11 was in the house though really but you know (laughs) what are you gonna do yeah she appears to go several days without going to the basement at all yeah i mean i suppose i suppose it's imaginable i mean i'm living in a small house right now so it's i forget that like maybe there is such a thing as a room you don't go in every day but um (laughs) and i guess like that's another kind of throwback quality, like the whole, your house isn't necessarily locked, like the kids are wherever after school and you just expect them home by sundown. Like it seems old fashioned now because everyone is available by cell phone at all times. But it's kind of that breezy thing. And it again reminds me of the Goonies where Mikey's mom, you know, they have the drama where they're trying to keep the house and she knows that Mikey has friends, but like the actual machinations and like level of, uh, shenanigans that they're up to is uh, completely veiled from the mom yeah and yet she does care i mean her, yes. t- her attempt to bond with nancy is the sort of thing that would work if indeed they were in a john hughes movie right but attempting to bond with her when she is distraught that her friend was kidnapped and devoured by a monster isn't as easy to bond with your mom about yeah well there's the whole if i utter this out loud no one would ever believe me thing that she and joyce actually share for a while nancy and joyce share that problem yeah so much of this show spends time having other characters not believe pretty much all of the women in the show except for mrs wheeler maybe I mean, Joyce has all of the stuff with the Demogorgon and with the lights and with everything and her conviction that the puppet they fish out of the water is not, in fact, her dead son. You know, all of these convictions that she has that nobody believes until later in the show. Nancy knows that Barb is missing, but she can't really convince anyone until a little later on. Uh, Terry Ives insists that her baby was taken from her and is driven to a stupor by either nebulous government agents poisoning her in some way, and or nobody believing her for so very long about this thing that must be so traumatic. And even... In some of the smaller ways, I mean, Lucas comes to believe that Elle has betrayed them and, you know, Steve Harrington thinks Nancy's cheating on him and doesn't want to listen when she's trying to tell him that she wasn't. You know, a lot of the drama in the show is built around people not believing women and things really kind of get cranking in terms of the plot in the last few episodes when everyone comes to believe them, when everyone else is convinced. Yeah, the narrative prize of you were right all all along is not always given to women characters, and quite a few women get to enjoy it in this piece. And for a show that uncritically reproduces a lot of 80s genre tropes, yeah. I think its treatment of women is actually a lot better than a lot of the things that it's taking homage to. Yeah, it is. It is. I think they allow Nancy to to have a lot of layers to her as well. Um, You know, when we meet her, she's 
she's very excited to be newly making out with Steve Harrington. And um, I 100% identify with that as a former teen girl, but she gets to get more serious. Uh, She gets to use her brain too. She gets to theorize about blood attracting the Demogorgon like like a shark. That idea comes from her. She's a dab hand at marksmanship, which is pretty great for her. She she gets a lot to do beyond how she's introduced. Like it's it, it goes back to the the point you're making about how the characters are kind of situated in different genres and then escape from them and cross over into other ones and intertwine and stuff. She 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 kicks herself out free from the John Hughes thing pretty fast. Oh, brief shout out to the Benny character from episode one because he was so great giving Ella sandwich and I really wanted to see more from him. But then, boom, you're wasted. <laughs> no progress beyond episode one for you. <laughs> yeah, he was a great salt of the earth type who gets sacrificed in a lot of these things to show the villains mean business. Yeah, because usually it's a blonde girl who goes first in a horror movie, but it was like a giant lumberjack looking dude. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in horror movies, it's the blonde girl, or honestly, the black guy, or the people who are having sex. Right. And and in this, oh sh- yeah, like in Jaws, right? Like, yeah. And <laughs> in and in, and this show is very pointed about having Nancy and Steve go up to Steve's room to have sex while they're not the ones that are being attacked. Yes, right. That is a different sort of mood. Oh, yeah. And also, of course, shout out to Barb, who's given a bit of short shrift. She's there and then she's gone. And then the police are not looking for her as far as I know, even though she's definitely missing. And of course, the fucking G-men moved her car to the bus station. So thanks for that misdirection. But yeah, like she kind of the town doesn't seem as concerned as they are about the disappearance of Will. And I did really like um, this is another moment that has stayed with me. Um between her disappearance at the end of one episode and the cold open of the other, where we see her and what we learn later is the upside down. She's in the pool, but the pool is empty. It's covered with tentacles and the weird ashes in the air and there's the growling and everything. So it's our, it's, it's like a, our first maybe solid glimpse of the concept of the upside down because we we know she was last seen at a pool but we don't yet have the full context of the world and the rules so we see this weird pool that looks similar to but completely horrifying version of the pool where she was last seen and you know we learn all we learn all about it later but i I like the i like the scariness of that and the the visual of her trying to get out on the on the steps and she's she's not able to make it yeah, so R.I.P. Barb, and shout out to her, to that extremely arresting visual that opens the episode, I think it's episode, possibly episode three, where she's in the upside down version of the pool, and we're trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah, rest in peace, Barb. Gone, but not forgotten. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of the upside down, do you want something of a concrete explanation for that is that something that you want to delve into a little more in season two or do you think it's fine as this alternate horrifying world well that's a very interesting question i kind of think they might do a different story where they don't revisit the upside down as such and i think i would be okay with it although maybe not because of the way that they actually conclude it with with will coughing up or whatever it is exactly in sync yeah that's that's really interesting glenn i guess i don't really know 
I would be satisfied either way because I think we got a good a good sense of an of the nightmare parallel universe of the upside down. Although there is there there is kind of the open question of how much of it is related to Elle's mental power. Like, did she actually generate the entire upside down? Um, did she merely access it? Like if she's able to come back, is it because the upside down is, is actually something she's manifested? Like, is it kind of like sphere, like the, the Michael Crichton book? Ooh, that's interesting. I had always thought of it. Well, always for the last week, <laughs> I had thought of it as a world that was pre-existing, but the kind of liminal space connecting it to our world was created by Elle's trauma. The idea that the whole world itself was created by Elle's trauma is very interesting. This sort of wrong version of this town. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very wrong, and I see room for it in the story, especially since she has received anti-love and she has anti-relationships and like there's a lot of inverse things surrounding her than what you would expect and and upside down is an inverse or a it's a not like i've seen some really great fan art of it of the upside down literally being upside down like there's there's our, our our heroes, you know, along the top plane, and then there's the Demogorgon crawling crawling along the bottom plane, and they have the same geographical features, like there's the same trees and the same rocks and stuff, but there's the two planes layered on top of each other. I do wonder about all that stuff, but yeah, to answer your question, like they they could they could do either. I think there's plenty of other things they could say about the upside down. I kind of hope that they flesh out Will's character a little bit, too, because Mm -hmm. they did do some things with him in flashbacks in this season, but if he's going to be in the show more, frankly, if the next season is about the after-effects of these events, with with Will still having the uh, Demogorgon larvae or something in him, Uh then... I hope they flesh his character out a little more and that that actor turns out to be of the same caliber as the other child actors they had in this show. All of of whom were good. I mean, they cast how many tweens in this show without stumbling (laughs) over bad child actors? That's really an achievement. Oh, so good. They all go to the max. Lucas and, and Mike and Dustin and Will are all just precious gems. They really are. Um, I agreed though. Will doesn't have as much to do. He's the name that's on everyone's lips, but his he, he himself as a character is uh, missing, so he's not there much. Oh, and it, but it does remind me of an, of another thing I think about all the time, which is Will's little voice singing the Clash song over the radio. Because to me, um, this is again before the reveal that that Joyce actually does know the truth. Like to me, that is such such a clear thing that would happen if you were grieving. You would you would hear like I can imagine it now. That it would be in your mind, the the sound of your child's voice. So to me, it was easy to believe either way. And actually, because I because I am a person in the real world, <laughs> real world, and not a sci fi world, it oh, seems like think. such a projection of grief, <laughs> right? Oh, I think just because I haven't seen the Demogorgon yet, <laughs> like just his little his little voice coming out of the radio after they've shown the 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 nice little backstory where Jonathan is uh is getting him into the Clash. And we, we hear him singing it. And then when we later learn that he is, in fact, trying to comfort himself in the horror dark of his house where his mom's not, but the monster is there. 
Like that's pretty horrifying. Like that you would be in some place you vaguely recognize, but nothing that you need is there. That's a very troubling thought. Yes, that is so horrifying. Yeah, that's like the horror of the Upside Down is that it is your home and your school and all of these places that you know, except it's wrong. It's so wrong. I like the effect with the, with the ash too in the air. Yeah, that it's, was a really good visual cue because it's 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 kind of unnerving to have that to have that ash i've seen some people theorize that it's fallout just to have that suspended in the air and that's a handy visual cue to see how much that space is intruding on our world when in the laboratory they go down to that level and suddenly almost the whole level has that ash floating around yeah and the the kind of um things that are organic but too big are very creepy so, like, the idea that there's this sort of spreading um, organic matter all over the place in the Upside Down is uh, r literally revolting. <laughs> yeah, or, or things that look organic in places they should not be. Like, yes. when Will appears in the wall in the house yes. and, and, and suddenly the wall kind of grows back in front of him. Yeah, and it looks like an intestine or something. Like, it's just, it's not right at all. So, yeah, shout out to the Duffer Brothers and way to go, entire cast. I enjoyed not knowing anybody except Winona Ryder and Matthew Modine and, and, and getting to know all these new actors. Oh, brief, brief extra comment about Matthew Modine and Dr. Brenner since I just said his name. It's kind of interesting to me that he is the papa, the huge air quotes on that, of, <laughs> of L. And he actually doesn't get a lot to say either. Um, his character is pretty tacit, like like she is. And to me, that does two things. It kind of it kind of does, you know, underscore why Elle is so socially lacking. Like he literally doesn't talk much, and now neither does she. But then also, he's kind of because we don't get to we don't get to hear from him or see anything any of his backstory at all. Like he's the boogeyman of the piece. He gets to be kind of like a pure antagonist, which you don't know. You don't get to see like it's very in fashion now to have an anti-hero, or um, you know the flawed villain or the you know the villain with the heart of gold thing. Like we see that a lot, and that's great stuff. Like there's a lot of great storytelling there, but it is kind of a, a, a precious throwback and also a kid movie thing or a, or a child sensibility thing to have a pure antagonist. So yeah, I, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed that. Yeah, there's kind of a clearer sense of morality there, which mm -hmm. is also a throwback. Yes, good guys and bad guys. Cowboys and uh, Indians, although that's definitely racist nomenclature right there. But um... <laughs> Yeah, big asterisk on that one. Yeah, huge asterisk on that one. But yeah, like in, in the sense that it's uh, an old-fashioned way of understanding a story. On that note, I think that this episode of The Spectacular will draw to a close. Thank you very, very much, Alana, for being with me tonight. Oh, always a supreme pleasure. It is an honor and a privilege to, to have been here with you talking about this. Thank you so much, listeners, uh, for being with us as well. Check out The Place to Be Nation. Check out everything we advertised. Check out Stranger Things. If you haven't and you listened to all this, I, I, I don't quite know what you're doing, but I still love and cherish you. <laughs> That's fair. Thank you very much. Good night, folks.
Right. Not so bad, dude. I think there's only a couple of things that are fucked up. 